0: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you, uh, and special welcome if you're new or visiting. My name's Cameron. If we haven't met, let's pray as we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that you're, you reveal yourself to us in it, and we pray now as we think through uh, the story of Exodus and the great plagues uh, that you would show us who you are, show your greatness to us, and grow our faith our trust in you. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I wanted to begin this morning by telling you a story from the 1930s about three young men who hopped on a bus one evening. Uh, they were feeling a bit cocky that night. They'd probably had a little bit too much to drink. And they noticed this lone African-American man uh, sitting up the back of the bus all by himself. Uh, he was pretty poor looking. Uh, dressed in a shabby uh, tracksuit and beanie. And these three men, they figured uh, they might have some fun with him and just push him a bit, see how far uh, they could go with him. Now, at first, they just kind of sat nearby um, and, and just made rude comments at his expense, but not directed to him, just to see if he would respond. But he didn't. And so they, they turned and started facing him more directly, started insulting him. And he just kept not responding. And eventually they just moved right up to him uh, and started insulting him directly to his face. But again, the guy said nothing. And this kept going on and on, insult uh, after insult, trying to get him to fight back. After all, there was three of them, only one of him. But the whole time he, he sat there without... Retaliation without threat, uh, taking their abuse. And eventually, the bus uh, arrived at that man's stop. And as he stood up, the three men realized that he was much, much bigger than they thought. Uh, not only was he, he towered over them, not only in height, but also in stature as well. And as they kind of cowered back in their seats a little bit, uh, he reached into his, um, into his jumper and, and pulled out a business card. And he gave it to them and walked off without a word. And as the bus sped away, the three men uh, looked down at the card and read the words, Joe Lewis, professional boxer. (laughs) Now, for those of you who don't know Joe Lewis, don't know boxing, uh, they had been trying to pick a fight with the man who reigned as undefeated heavyweight champion of the world For nearly 13 years. That's still the the record that stands today. Uh, Many consider him to be the greatest fighter to ever have lived. He could have destroyed these men, annihilated them, ripped them to shreds. You really got to wonder what those guys were thinking after he got off the bus. Embarrassed, terrified, relieved, small... They were in the presence of greatness. uh, Someone who could have wiped the floor with them and they had literally no idea. And it was because they didn't know who he was that it nearly cost them dearly. You could bet if they had known who this man was, known his power, known his strength, it would have changed the, the way that they treated him, the way they responded to him. And you know, If this is true for a heavyweight boxer, how much more is it true of God? Uh, Over the last few weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, we've seen time and time again the greatness and power and wonder of God on display. And yet despite his greatness, despite his power, far too often people fail to recognize who he is. It's just as true uh, in the time of Exodus as it is today. And... As we look at the famous 10 plagues that God uh, inflicts on Egypt uh, in order to rescue his people from slavery, we're going to see God reveal himself uh, and show everyone who they're messing with. Uh, And his way of revealing himself isn't nearly as subtle as Joe Lewis's business card. In fact, we're going to see God reveal himself uh, in one of the most amazing and terrifying ways possible, uh, to leave no doubt who he truly is. Now, let me remind us uh, of the context of the events so far, what's happened so far. Uh, So you'll remember God's people, the Israelites. uh, They're enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Things are going bad. They've been oppressed horribly. Uh, But God had made promises uh, generations before to their ancestors, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that he would make them a great nation, that he would give them their own land and ultimately bless the world Through them, And and we've been seeing so far that God has been keeping his promises. Uh, We saw that God's already grown them into a small nation, and despite being horribly oppressed, they continue to multiply. Uh, And last week we saw, the last couple of weeks we've seen uh, God say, uh, the time has finally come, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and we're going to go to the land that I promised. Uh, And we saw God choose Moses uh, to be his messenger to Pharaoh, uh, to tell him, "Let my people go, and at the end of chapter four, everything looks really promising. Moses, while a little bit reluctant, a little bit scared, he goes to the Israelite elders, tells them what god 's planned. Uh, they all believe they bow down and they worship God. Everything seems to be going along moving on really, really nicely. But in chapter five, things go downhill pretty fast. Uh, Moses goes and delivers his message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. And, well, let me read it from verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh he doesn't listen. Who is this Lord you speak of? And, and remember we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter three, when Lord is all capitals like that, uh, that's uh, not a title like king, ruler, it's actually referring to the personal name of God. Uh, Yahweh, it means I am, the one who just is, the one who has existence in himself, who isn't dependent on anyone else. It's God's name. Pharaoh's saying, I don't know the Lord. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? And his response, by the way, isn't one of genuine inquisitiveness. He's not asking for a lesson in Hebrew religion. He's saying, I don't know this God, and really, I don't care what this God has to say. He's not necessarily denying the existence of the Jewish God. They believe that there were lots of different gods, so he probably has no problem with that. But for Pharaoh, Israel's God isn't worth giving a second thought to. They've already got their own gods. Pharaoh himself was considered to be a sort of god on earth. And the Israelites, well, they were Egypt's slaves. I mean, how powerful could your god be if you're our slaves? Clearly, our gods are more powerful than your gods. So why am I going to bother listening To what your God has to say. And so Pharaoh refuses to let them go. He ignores God's commands. He he rejects what God has to say. He dismisses God and God's representatives as nothing. And indeed, last week we saw uh, he makes life a lot worse for them as well. Uh, He thinks that the Israelites are lazy, that life is too easy for them. If you've got all this time to think about religion... Well, clearly I'm not working you hard enough. And so he says, you've been making bricks for me out of straw and clay. Um, That's been good. Now you've got to go gather the raw materials yourselves while still making all those bricks. Uh, It's probably doubled their task. And they were already being really worked hard as slaves. But, you know, it's not just Pharaoh who fails to recognize who God truly is. Uh, Everyone did, and this is really our first point today. At this point in time, at this point in the story, nobody recognizes who God is. Uh, Let me read on. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelites, they are furious with Moses and Aaron. Uh, They want God to judge them, to to wipe them out. Uh, All you've done is made it worse. Uh, Pharaoh treats us even harsher. Because of you, we're going to die. Now, they're taking this out on Moses and Aaron, but really what it demonstrates is a lack of faith in God. They don't trust God that what he said is going to happen will actually uh, come, will actually happen. They don't believe he really is going to save them, whether it's a uh, lack of faith in his power or his goodness or his faithfulness. I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, But now that things have turned bad for them, they don't think that God is going to come through. In fact, there's something here that shows uh, something really subtle here that shows uh, just how low their loyalty to God is. Uh, in uh, verses 15 and 16, there uh, they call themselves uh, your servants to Pharaoh three times. They're sucking up to him. They're trying to show their loyalty to him, throwing themselves at his mercy, uh, casting themselves before Pharaoh, not God. Uh, and indeed. Uh, What's really significant here is that the word servant there uh, is is the same word used back in chapter 4 when God tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they might come and worship me. The word servant and the word worship, it's the same word. They were meant to be worshippers of Yahweh, servants of Yahweh, but they're sucking up to Pharaoh saying, we're actually your servants. Please be merciful to us. O oh, great Pharaoh, we will serve you. So the people of God aren't even loyal to God at this stage at this stage. And sadly, even Moses, even he isn't any better. After being told off by the people, what do you think Moses does? Well, he scurries off and has a whinge to God. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Why did you do this, God? Is this your great plan to get us all killed? You haven't done any of the things that you said you were going to do. We haven't been saved. Now, in a remarkable example of God's ongoing continuous patience with Moses Uh, for about the 20th time so far. uh, God reassures Moses, reaffirms uh, that it's all going to be okay. In chapter 6, he says, I'm going to keep my promise. I've heard Israel's cry. I'm going to do something about it. He tells Moses, uh, go back uh, to the Israelites. Reassure them uh, that I'm going to save them. But even now, it's still a disaster. Basically, uh, nobody believes God. When, when Moses tells the Israelites, they're, this, they're, they're just so disheartened that they don't listen. Uh, whatever, mate. Look, we've just got far too much work to do now that we don't have time to get our hopes up again. Um, just, just don't bother us with this God stuff. And this, in turn, makes Moses doubt even more. In, in verse 12 there, Moses said to the Lord, if, if the Israelites won't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? since I speak with faltering lips. So basically, the problem all round, the universal problem, is a failure to recognize the Lord as God. Pharaoh rejects him, dismisses him, uh, opposes him by oppressing God's people more. God's own people, they fail to trust God. And even God's chosen messenger, God's chosen saviour, doesn't think that God can do it. All around in the immediate context is a disbelief in God, in God's power, his control, his promises. And so this really is what frames the 10 plagues that God goes on to inflict on Egypt. Now, in one sense, it's judgment on Egypt, it uh, for rejecting God, for pressing God's people, for enslaving them, for trying to commit genocide on Israel's children, we could preach uh, this passage as a lesson on judgment, and that would be perfectly accurate. We've, done it, we've preached it this way here before. God is a just God, a just judge. His judgment is real, and the Egyptians come to learn that. But the plagues are actually about much more than just merely judgment, they're about God showing who He really is, who is really God of all, who is really in charge, where Yahweh stands in the pecking order. In fact, God tells us quite explicitly that this is the very purpose. Uh, so uh, He says uh, in chapter 6, verse 6, that it's meant to be a lesson for the Israelites. He says, When I redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, verse 7, then you will know. That I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, God wants to show His people who He truly is, so that they stop doubting Him, so they stop questioning him, and not just for the israelites who are who are there at that exact moment, but for generations to come in chapter ten i 'll rescue i 'll perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt heartlessly harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. It's meant to teach the Israelites for future generations. We can trust God when life goes hard, when when our circumstances aren't looking good, we can look back to the plagues and go, no, no, God is powerful. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord. He's the one who's in control. We can trust him. And in fact, it goes beyond even the Israelites. He's going to use these plagues as a revelation to the Egyptians and to the whole world of who he is. And so in chapter 7, he says, after these plagues, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. In fact, let me go overkill for a second. This will be tedious, but you'll get the point by the end. Uh, watch, out, watch how time and again God explains the purpose of his plagues. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 17, this is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed uh, to blood. Or or chapter 8, after the plague of frogs and Pharaoh asked Moses to pray to God that it will stop. uh, Moses says, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Or chapter 9, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Notice a bit of a theme here? I hope you do. I don't want to keep doing this. Um, God says, I'm using these plagues to show the Egyptians who he is, that he's the real deal, that he's in control not anyone else. In fact, uh, in the next two verses uh, here, uh, God says makes, he makes a really interesting, really important point. He says, For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God basically says... I didn't need to go through all these plagues. After all, it's only after the tenth plague that Pharaoh finally relents and lets them go. Why not just skip straight to that one? Or even more so, why not just wipe all the Egyptians out altogether? They can just take over Egypt. Um, uh, That'd be great. After all, they deserved it. He could have taken a much simpler, easier route. But He wants the Egyptians and the whole world to see his power on display. He wants the whole world to hear who is the Lord of all. He wants his enemies to know who he is, how there's none like him. He wants his enemies to turn and come to him. And he wants his people to stop doubting him, stop grumbling and trust him. That's the purpose of the plagues. And so the big question we've got to ask then is, well, what does it show about God? Now, uh, for time's sake, we won't uh, cover all the plagues. Um, if you've ever watched Prince of Egypt or something like that, I'm sure you've uh, heard much of the story before. As you can see in the Egypt, uh, in the image, sorry, uh First God, he turns the Nile to blood, and then we've got frogs covering the land, then followed by gnats, then flies, then a plague that kills heaps of livestock. Horrible boils break out on the Egyptians and their animals. Then a horrible uh, hailstorm that destroys everything not sheltered. Uh, Locusts, uh, then uh, darkness for three days, followed by the killing of every firstborn son in Egypt. Uh, Now, there's a really wide way of, a wide array of plagues. And I reckon they f- show a few things about God. Now, at a basic level, they show God's absolute control, his absolute power, his absolute sovereignty over all of creation, over all nature, over the, uh, all the physical world. So, you know, the first plague, we've got him transforming the Nile, the river. The second plague, he brings forth, Frogs. The third plague, he turns dust into gnats. Uh, Hail comes from the sky. Locusts blown in by the wind. He blots out the sun, the animals, the elements. God controls it all. And he controls it with precision. So, for instance, we repeatedly see uh, Moses telling Pharaoh exactly when the plague will begin and Exactly when the plague will end. It'll be tomorrow afternoon. It'll be tomorrow morning. It'll stop when I pray. Things like that. God's in control. He's not just kind of launching a plague and hoping for the best. He's got precision in terms of the timing. He's also got precision in terms of who uh, is affected. Uh, So each plague, he ensures that only the Egyptians are impacted, never the Israelites Their city gets missed by the storm. They don't get the boils all over the body. Their livestock aren't affected. God is precise in his control. God's control over nature is total, total mastery, total rule over all the physical world. That's what he reveals. But, you know, uh, this uh, isn't a lesson... Uh, that God is only teaching about himself uh, because uh, isn't the only lesson he's teaching about himself, sorry. Um, What these 10 plagues also do is, well, say something about the Egyptian gods as well. God hasn't just picked 10 random plagues and gone, what can I do next, you know. Hail, that's a good idea. And like he could have substituted it with lightning or, you know, gnats are really interesting but maybe I could have picked dung beetles or something, you know, like just picked random things. He's not just picking them out of nowhere. No, no. Uh, each of these plagues actually coincides uh, with one or more of the Egyptian gods. And so uh, with the first plague, Hapi, H-A-P-I, um, I don't know how it's pronounced, Harpy, I think, uh, is the god of fertility. And she was linked with the Nile because the Nile, it brought life to the land of Egypt every year. And yet what does God do? He turns it to blood. He makes it bring death. God shows, I am the one who has control over the Nile. Not harpy. The Egyptian god can't stand up to me. Uh, Hecht or Hecate was, was another fertility god who had the head of a frog. But no, God controls the frogs. He sends a plague, and only at his command do the frogs recede. Not at Hecats. Uh, There were several fertility gods associated with the bull and with cows, yet when God sends a a plague on the livestock, none of Egypt's gods were able to protect their cows. Uh, Not the sky goddess uh, wasn't able to stop the plagues of hail, nor the wind that brought the locusts, uh, nor could her father Shu, uh, the god of wind and air. Indeed, the night plague with the darkness has God go up against Ra, the sun god, who the Egyptians considered the creator god, the supreme one over all. And yet what does God do? For three days, God blocks the Sun God is saying, your supreme God is nothing he isn't in control I am I am the Lord God is saying with this last plague uh, there is none of your gods can protect you and indeed uh, well that's what the very last plague does he on, he makes it explicit with the tenth plague uh, on that night I will pass through Egypt And strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God says, I'm showing you your gods are nothing. They can't protect you. When even Pharaoh, God on earth, when even his own son is killed, you'll know that I am the Lord. Nobody else. There are no other gods. There are no other deities that can stand before me. I alone am God. I alone am in control. That's what these plagues show. This is what he wants the world to see. And he wants the world to turn to him in response. And you know, one of the awesome little details in this story that we often skip over when we're reading it is, actually, we see throughout this story, people come to recognize who God is truly is. Uh, and so in chapter 8, after the plague of gnats, the magicians in Pharaoh's court, they come to realize this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's own magicians recognize what's happening here. Uh, in chapter 9, God warns everyone that a hailstorm is coming. And so we read those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves to and their livestock inside. Officials within Pharaoh's own government are starting to get it. They go, "Oh, I know what's. I'm going to listen to this because this God is clearly God." And in fact, best of all, in chapter twelve, when Israel are finally freed from Egypt, we read the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There are about six hundred thousand men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Notice that last verse. When the Israelites are finally freed, people from other nations, presumably Egyptians, but any other foreigners uh, living in the land as well, they heed the lesson. They realize which God is worth following. They join the Israelites and become part of God's people. These signs of judgment... Convince them to turn to the true God and be saved. That's what God intended to come from these plagues. And this same desire of God for us to know him, for us to know his power, know his control, know that he is the true God, and turn and trust him and obey him and follow him, that desire still continues today. That's what God is doing in the world today. Right now. And indeed, in the person of Jesus, God has done this ultimately by becoming a man to reveal himself fully to us. Uh, at the start of John's Gospel, we read that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. God has become man to dwell among us, to show us God fully to fully reveal who the true God is. Or in Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says to his father, I have made you known to them. That's what I've come to do. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus says, I'm going to continue to make you known to the world. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through us, through the ongoing witness and ministry of God's people, first directly through the apostles, but now through us today as followers of Christ. That's our job in the world. In fact, that's the main reason Jesus hasn't returned yet in the ultimate judgment, the ultimate plague, so to speak. Uh, In 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter responds to scoffers Who mocked the Christian message saying, where's where's Jesus' return, huh? He said he was coming back. He's not here yet. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think your God is real. I think it's all. Peter replies, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare God is giving humanity a time to hear about him a time to turn and be saved but it won't last forever and we're told there will come a time where everyone will recognize who God truly is, where everyone will recognize Jesus as Lord, whether they like it or not. Philippians 2, famous passage that we sing here many times, says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will come a time when everyone will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that everyone will bow the knee, that everyone will recognize who is actually God. And that's when Christ returns. But it won't all be positive. For those who have turned to Jesus before it's too late, it'll it'll be a day of great joy, a day of great celebration but for those who don't it will be more like pharaoh they will recognize who is the boss they will recognize who is truly lord but it won't be as friends it'll be as conquered enemies as defeated rebels as those who justly incur his judgment this is where the world's headed And it's why God wants us to be involved in helping as many people hear about it before it's too late. So if you're here visiting, if you're not yet sure that you're right with God, the message of this passage is, well, God's made it clear. In the plagues, most of all in Jesus, he is the one true God. You need to be right with him. Turn to him now before it's too late. And for us who are his people... There are two things that this passage has been saying over and over again. He is the God who is in control. So don't be like the Egyptians. When things go uh, Israelites, when things go bad, don't doubt, don't worry, don't grumble. Trust him. He's the God of all. He's in control, even to the minute detail. But also get on with that job of sharing this message with others. That's our mission as a church. That's what we're on about. We don't just gather here to feel good about ourselves, but to spur one another on to go out and reach the world so that others can come to know Jesus. Because once he returns, it'll be too late. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, that you are the God of all, that there is none like you. Thank you for showing it in the plagues. Thank you for showing it in Jesus. And thank you for giving us time so that we could turn to you before it's too late. We pray, Father, that we, first of all, will turn and be right with you, uh, that we would trust in the Lord Jesus, his death for our sins, that we would lay down our own crown and, and, um, before the feet of Christ and acknowledge that he is our Lord. We pray when things aren't going well that we won't give up, that we would keep trusting your plan and stick with Jesus. But, Lord, we pray for us as a church and as, in, as individuals that you will use us to bring more people to yourself for their sake before it's too late and for your glory because you are the one who deserves all praise and glory and honor and power for you are the Lord of all. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.